0: Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure gamebooks out loud on the internet. My name is Hieronymus J Doom, and this episode is very special to me indeed. Like most very boring people, I have a tremendous fondness for the game of Snooker, a game I play at the level of a toddler, but enjoy watching on the TV very much indeed. This is a passion I share with my husband to the extent that we've actually been to see some live tournaments in the before times. He once suggested that it would be fun to do an adventure gamebook based on snooker. I, safely ensconced on the lofty throne of the semi-professional gamebook critic, begged to differ. Imagine my surprise on my last birthday when it turned out he'd only gone and done it. He'd produced a 400-section gamebook designed to simulate the thrills, spills, and off-table intrigue of a lengthy game of snooker. So this episode, I'm going to present a playthrough of The Cruel Game, a game book by Dr. Marcus E. Law. Because he is a kind fellow, he's also given his permission to send a copy to my patrons. If you're listening to this, you are already benefiting from the support of my patrons, because it's only thanks to them that I can justify the time and effort of putting together bonus episodes on the regular. But if you're one of the people who generously supports me at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom, you're going to be getting a surprise bonus game book this month. That goes with a horror game book and the two complete role-playing games my patrons have already received. I'm also working on another role-playing game and my second game book, Rats in the Cellar, which should be going out to patrons before the end of summer, if I continue hacking away at the speed I am. I've been posting a few updates on Patreon about my progress and some of the themes and ideas I'm playing with as well, if that is of any interest. Without any further ado, let's jump into The Cruel Game, and thanks once again to my patrons for making this possible. So we've got a few stats to generate. Rather than skill, stamina and luck, we have form, concentration and momentum. Form is the best friend and the worst enemy of every professional sportsman. Even the best player can have periods of poor play. And on the right day, the worst players can take out the very best in the business. Form can fluctuate somewhat over long matches, which take place over several days It's generated by rolling 1d6 and adding 6. My character, Plankton Jodril Flange, or PJ Flange to their friends, has a starting form of 8, which is, let's be honest, not great. Concentration is a key ability in snooker. The ability to keep your focus on every shot is vital, especially in a sport where you may well have long periods where you're sat in a chair effectively a spectator as your opponent pots ball after ball. In the cruel game, concentration is also generated by running 1d6 and adding 6. It can fluctuate a lot from these starting values because concentration fluctuates. PJ Flange has a starting concentration of seven, which is literally the worst concentration you can have. That's actually quite nice in a way because my own ability to concentrate is also absolutely shocking. So I feel like I have something in common with my character. The last stat is momentum, which represents the way changing fortunes and passages of play can affect players. All games are easy when you're playing well, and confidence has a tendency to breed success. Momentum can be positive or negative, And starts off at zero, and it will change considerably as the game progresses. I'll talk about how we resolve frames of Snooker when we get to it. After we've played to a decent chunk, I'm going to call a halt and offer a few thoughts about the books. I don't want to spoil the end for those who will be getting a copy. I'll be going fairly light on detailed criticism because I can't think of anything less romantic than meticulously picking apart something which your loved one has made especially for you. But I will offer a few Blazing remarks, and I think I'll probably have some thoughts about game design more generally because I always have thoughts about game design more generally. So let's get the boys on the bays. That's a Rob Walker reference. I am such a nerd. You step into the crucible theater through a small entrance at the top of a flight of stairs as the announcer Bob Strider concludes his introduction and the audience begins applauding wildly. You are briefly overwhelmed by the deafening noise of the cheers, and of course some boos all around you, combined with your chosen walk-on music booming from the speakers and filling the confined space of the auditorium. Is it normal to have thought about your walk-on music as much as I have, when you have zero chance of ever being in a situation where anyone will be playing music when you come into a room? The only way I'm getting walk on music in reality is if i bring a ghetto blaster with me and just inflict it on people my walk on music at the moment is Kashmir by led zeppelin because i just think that riff that driving riff is a really really good thing to walk out to so uh, if anyone wants to uh, hire a 43 year old man with asthma and a knackered back to be a professional wrestler i would like you to also clear Kashmir by Led Zeppelin as my walk on music, please. Coloured and white lights dazzle you and the rows of faces and cameras turn towards you, leave you feeling exposed like a botanical specimen pinned on a card. Briefly, you wish you could flee back through the door to your dressing room, but no. This is your moment. This is what you have worked towards all your years of lonely practice. This is what you have fought for through seven rounds of matches against increasingly challenging opponents. Now you are entering the hallowed ground of the Crucible to make your mark, and you will not be running away. Raising your cue in a salute to your fans and a challenge to your detractors, you grin broadly and descend the stairs to the central stage, dominated by the newly refitted table, its cloth a seamless, unsullied plain of emerald green you shake Bob's hand, and he wishes you good luck, and then you take the hand of the severe-looking young woman, Agneska Petrova, who will be referring the match. She has already acquired a reputation for scrupulous fairness, and does not tolerate any unsportsmanlike or disruptive behaviour from players or audience members. Very, very different at the darts. If you see the darts, there's a, a real atmosphere of fiesta, whereas... The snooker which also requires the same degree of concentration and hand-eye coordination is played mostly in a hushed, reverential quiet punctuated by bouts of polite applause. It is a great accolade for a referee so young to have been given the opportunity to referee the final of the World Snooker Championship. Perhaps you sense a slight tension in her demeanour. Is she also nervous about messing up her first big test of ability? You make your way to your seat, with your name emblazoned above it, and a glass and bottle of still mineral water waiting on a small table beside it. Sadly, not a uh, bottle of Glenmorangie and a pack of Lambert and Butler cigarettes as it was back in the days of yore. As you settle yourself down to prepare, stowing your cue extension under the chair and wiping your cue to ensure it slides smoothly, Bob Strider is already outlining the storied career of your opponent, Johnny. O'Mulligan in his announcement. As the higher-ranked player, reigning champion with seven world titles already under his belt, O'Mulligan enters the arena second, to even louder howls of acclaim from his many admirers. Looking like he means business, he walks steadily down towards the stage, accompanied by his usual strains of, we are the champions. See, that is a, uh, a power move from, uh, Mulligan, I would consider that unlucky to walk out to music that indicated I was going to be successful in a sporting competition. But seven world championships, he's got the game to back it up. He flashes you a feral grin before joining you to pose for the cameras at the end of the table, the beribboned trophy between you. Glancing at the long list of famous names decorating the great silver cup, you imagine your own taking place at the end. Or would it be Mulligan's name yet again? Tomorrow night, you will know one way or the other. The preliminaries settled. Agneska produces a coin from her pocket, flips it expertly, and invites you to call it. Will you call heads or tails? You see, as a naturally pessimistic human being, my instinct is always to call tails, because it always feels as though heads is the more positive call. I don't know why I think that. When you call tails, you you seem to me to be giving up on life in some way. So I will call Tails. I apologise if you can hear any noises in the background. My cat has just decided to embark on a more than usually serious programme of self-ablution. He does like to save it for when I'm recording. You call Tails. Roll one die. If we get one to three, it's one result. If you get four to six, you get another result. I get a five. You lose the toss. And feel a momentary disappointment at this tiny misfortune. But you shrug it off. Johnny O'Mulligan opts to break, clearly raring to go. First frame O'Mulligan to break. So we need to make note of the fact that he broke off in the first frame. It will be relevant later in the match. Your opponent strides with immense purpose towards the bulk end of the table, running his cue through his large hands. Amid a chorus of whistles and enthusiastic cries of, Come on, Johnny! Agneska Petrova fixes the crowd with a steely glare. They quieten to watch their idol, carefully positioning the cue ball in the D between the brown and the green. He bends, feathers the cue a couple of times and then delivers it boldly. All eyes are fastened on the passage of the white down the table towards the nearest triangle of reds. So we need to roll another die. Yeah, this time it's a one to four or five to six. Get gets a one... O'Mulligan's break off is sound as expected. The white knocks the pack gently, dislodging a couple of reds by a few inches, then bounces off the top cushion and returns to the bulk end, finishing up an inch or so off the cushion. That is a good safety shot. Breathing deeply and ignoring the crowd's catcalls, you walk up to the table for the first time, assessing your options. There is a small chance of potting one of the loose reds to the top right corner, but it would be a difficult shot to pull off with the cue ball positioned as it is you'd have to trust a luck to position on a colour afterwards. So yeah, having the uh, the white ball next to the cushion makes every kind of shot more difficult because you, well, you can't put backspin on it at all and it can be a lot harder to put side spin on. On the other hand, there's a fairly obvious safety shot available, knocking the loose red back towards the pack, aiming to return the white to the bulk cushion. However, this would risk getting caught in a long safety battle, and Mulligan's safety play is generally excellent. How do you want to play it? Well, my form is in the toilets, and my concentration's all over the place, so rather than going for the challenging pot, I think I'm going to try and play safe, hoping to push my opponent into an error. You play the safety shot, and it pans out well, leaving your opponent with nothing to go at. However, he responds with another excellent safety, and this time you're left snookered behind the green. And in something of a bind, you pace the table, trying to decide how to escape. After a couple of minutes of thinking time, the audience are growing restless. The referee looks as though she might ask you to hurry things along if you don't make a move soon. (gasps) Decision paralysis. Nothing worse than decision paralysis. What will your play be? Uh, Do you want to play the most obvious escape? Trying to nestle into the side of the pack without disturbing anything. So it's kind of like a soft shot very negative way of playing, because there's usually an easy safety afterwards. Alternatively, you might want to try a more daring three-cushion escape, aiming to end up tucked behind a loose red just below the black spot, which would put O'Mulligan in real difficulties if it comes off. Yeah, he'll be playing up the table the wrong way. I think you've got to go for the more daring three-cushion escape, so send the white off. Three cushions, down. That is a really tough shot, actually, because you're you're, you're playing facing in the opposite way to the ball you're trying to land on. Yeah, very challenging. But that's what we're going to do. Your bold play pays off, and the audience gasps as the cue ball bounces off the bulk left and top cushions to rest almost, but not quite touching the intended object ball. O'Mulligan taps his cue on the table to acknowledge the quality of your shot. He is comprehensively snookered, and will probably need several attempts to get out of the hole he's in. Very, very hard to play. Right next to a red ball, because if the white makes any contact with the red ball, you're judged to have made what's called the push shot, where the cue, the white ball, and the object ball are all touching each other, which is a foul shot. Anyway, we've got one concentration, one much-needed concentration on my dad. So... Concentration now up to eight. So roll one die to see how many times he misses or fouls before striking a red. So how good's your safety game? One. One. His safety game is in excellent, excellent shape. So we resolve the frame, uh, but we reduce O'Mulligan's concentration in this first frame by one for the, the, the foul that uh, he has committed since he's been rattled by the setback, which gives him a form of 9 and a concentration of 11. So we now need to generate our ability, which is our form plus our momentum. So if we've got negative momentum, we need to reduce our form. And we resolve the, the to and fro of the frame by rolling two dice, adding the results to our respective abilities. And whenever you get higher than your opponent, you Do 1d6 damage to their concentration. And once a player's concentration is reduced to zero, you get to make a break, and it will tell you how that break goes in the text. So O'Mulligan has a form of nine, which gives him an ability of nine, and a concentration of ten. So there's a number of different possible outcomes to this this first Battle of the Bays. So if he uh, wins the battle, then he goes on to win the frame. If I win, but I lose one round of combat, as it were, to him, I need two goes. Undramatic win of 30 and 45, which would get me one momentum. If I win without dropping a single round, I make a stunning century break of 1, 1, 5. And that will get me two momentum. So I'm going to roll some dice and find out how this first frame goes. Amazingly, I have won the first frame with a stunning break of 1 which means I get to add two momentum to my score. O'Mulligan, his form might be better than mine at the moment, but yeah, he just was playing unbelievably badly, uncharacteristically badly. That's what makes sport so exciting. Even though he had every advantage, he had more concentration, he had more form than me. Yeah, he completely uh, broke down. So I've got to now capitalise on this weakness. First frame to PJ. You settle back in your seat as the referee prepares the table for the second frame. You are aware of the presence of the capacity crowd on all sides, variously chatting, eating sweets, bursting out in sudden laughter, or even... Nipping out of the auditorium to purchase a quick drink or use the facilities. Wiping your cue and sipping your mineral water. You attempt to centre yourself during this moment of peace. And to put all thoughts of how the previous frame went out of your head. Your concentration returns to its starting value. In my case eight. All that matters now is the new frame. You must be holy in the moment. Do you know I've never been holy in the moment in my life. I doubt I will be holy in the moment on my deathbed. I'll be thinking, is this how people die? Am I doing it wrong? Does that person over there think I'm taking too long? Should I hurry up and die? Or are they actually just hoping I'll linger? Maybe I'll linger for a bit. Oh, too late. I'm already dead. Suddenly, you realise that Agneska is standing motionless beside the table, on which the balls are positioned ready for the next frame. What are you waiting for, you wonder? Then you notice your opponent's empty seat O'Mulligan is still outside the arena, presumably in the toilet. A minute later, he returns to light applause from the crowd, and as Petrovich announces the second frame, play gets underway. Players will often nip out if they lose the opening frame. Um, perfectly legal; you can leave for a comfort break any time. But making the guy who's in front just wait a little bit. There's a little bit of mind games in there sometimes. Also gives you a chance to regain your own. Inner focus away from the hot lights and the cameras and the crowd. You can have that moment to yourself. Give yourself a little talking to. You know, gee yourself up by saying what a massive disappointment you are to everyone who's ever met you. Um, this is why I'm not a top-flight sportsman. That, and I've got two left hands. It soon becomes clear that Johnny's brief absence has renewed his focus remarkably well. After a brief safety exchange, he gets in with a stunning long red, a shot to nothing as the black is tied up but it gives him control of the frame and soon he is in again when you play a slightly weak safety you can only sit back in your chair and admire as he clears up an awkward table you would not have thought he could make such a good break from such an unpromising starting position at sixty-four up with only fifty-nine on it looks as though the frame is one but O'Mulligan unexpectedly misses a red which would have put it beyond all doubt the table doesn't look especially promising for snookers but perhaps you could use the blue, which has rolled up near to the yellow pocket. The referee turns in your direction to see whether you intend to come back to the table. So I need two snookers, two four-point snookers. So, um, yeah, I will. It's, it's considered good form to come back if you need two snookers. It's not a lost cause by any stretch of the imagination. So I'll do the professional thing. I'll come back and uh, play on in the hope of getting snookers. If a ball is like just sort of sitting over a pocket you can sometimes use the pocket to t- tuck in right behind it and make it very very difficult to get out of so uh, it's worth a punt oh mulligan's miss has left you with a good shot on the red he was aiming for do you manage to take the remaining loose reds with blacks to make 24 the final red had run safe earlier in the frame but you contrived to take the previous colors in such a way as to cannon the red off the cushion giving you a nice angle to pot it into the corner and end on the black. The crowd applaud your elegant shot Came one concentration. That's good because one of the things you don't want to be doing when you need snookers is potting low value colours, like, you know, the yellow is only worth two points and what have you. And that you can end up making it a bad situation, even worse. So, taking them with blacks is ideal. Now you need to think about making snookers. The blue is still down near the yellow pockets, and you aim to glance the cue ball gently off the yellow to send it off the bottom cushion and up to the balk line behind the green, while the white comes to rest snookered behind the blue, almost in the pocket. So, trying to get almost a full snooker table's worth of distance between the white and the red, and also snookering my opponent behind the blue. That is uh, going to be a tough one to get out of if I can pull it off. It'll be a challenging shot and there's a chance of going in-off, which is where the, the white goes into the pocket after making contact with the object ball, which is also a foul. Roll one die and add the result to your ability, i.e. your form plus your momentum, to see if you manage to pull it off. So, So we're aiming to get over 15. This is quite a nice thing because like traditionally in 1d6 plus 6 stats, as in like fighting fantasy, if you want to test someone's ability, you roll two dice and you try and get equal to or under. Here, what Marcus has done is by rolling a die and adding your ability, it creates a kind of difficulty in quite a, a neat way. There's no need to remember other things. It's a nice little spot rule, but obviously you can set the difficulty of that roll to whatever you like. Uh, so that's a nice little thing. To get 15 or over, I need a seven on 1d6. Yeah, that's not going to happen. My, my result is inevitably below 15. Unfortunately, you slightly misjudge the angle and the cue ball comes off the yellow, nudges the blue, and then slips into the yellow pocket. It's gone in off. Now you will need a further snooker. Johnny O'Mulligan returns confidently to the table. Clearly determined to put this frame to bed properly, he positions the white optimally to take the yellow into the middle pocket and goes on to clear the table. Of course he does. He returns to his seat with a smug smile amid thunderous applause. Lose two momentum for this disheartening failure. Frame apiece, and my momentum has dropped back to zero. Back in your seat, ready for the third frame, you see O'Mulligan leaving the arena again and wonder hopefully whether he has a stomach upset. Unwise Curry last night, perhaps, after his semi-final against the ageing Don Biggins concluded decisively in the afternoon. That might put him off his stroke. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I think back in the uh, early days of professional snooker, when it was first on telly, I think there was more than a few matches begun in the morning were kind of dueling hangovers, more than dueling snooker players. However, when O'Mulligan returns, he looks fresh as a daisy and even grins disconcertingly at you. Maybe this is some sort of gamesmanship, deliberately delaying the start of the frame to keep you off balance. When he gets in early on, you also notice that he keeps touching the cloth, brushing away invisible specks of chalk, or smoothing the nap as though as to assert this is his domain, his living room, as the commentators would have it, after so many glorious visits to the crucible. It is indeed rather off-putting. Lose one concentration for your irritation. So concentration now down to six. And I it went up by one. My concentration's back down to seven. It turns out to make little difference in the end. His break extends time and time again. You long for him to miss a red into a tight middle pocket or to lose position when coming up for the blue. But he seems in impeccable form just now. After just eight minutes, he sails past the winning line. Unlike the previous frame, even if he breaks down now, it would be futile for you to come back to the table given the number of snookers we would need. The only thing in question now is the size of his break. Raising your eyes to the heavens, you long for something to go wrong and spoil it. You don't feel you can bear to hear his adoring fans riotously cheering if he makes a century. It would just be too depressing. So we've got a straight 50-50 roll. 1-3, 4-6, so we get a 1. Unfortunately, your mean-spirited prayers are not answered. And O'Mulligan soars past the century mark in flamboyant style, clearing the table with an exhibition shot round all the cushions to pot the black decisively in the left corner pocket. The crowd goes wild, and you grit your teeth with frustration. Lose two momentum. So I'm now 2-1 down with a momentum of minus two. After the disappointment of the third frame, you wonder whether to take a leaf out of your opponent's book and leave the auditorium for a short break, even though you don't actually need the toilet. Do you want to retreat to the players' facilities for a couple of minutes, or would you prefer to sit quietly in your chair and empty your mind of distractions in your usual way? I'm going to retreat to the players' facilities for a couple of minutes and give myself a stern talking to. The moment that Agneska Petrova announces the scores at the end of the third frame, you leap up resting your cue carefully against your chair and leave the arena through the door to the players dedicated facilities o'mulligan stays in his seat after his win and to your relief and you hurry up to the cubicle it is a sudden relief to be away from the glaring lights intrusive cameras and vast crowds of observers in the theatre. The only noise in the toilet area comes from a dripping tap and an occasional rush of water through a nearby pipe. You stretch your arms above your head and move to roar defiantly, baring your teeth. I'll show you, you smug bastard. You won't keep me off the table this time. I'm coming for you, and as for your fans, screw you all. I'm the one who'll be holding that trophy tomorrow, and you'll just have to suck it up. I'm the champion. I'm the world champion! (sighs) Good pep talk. Punching the air with your fist and charged with resolve to get into the next frame, you leave the toilets and make your way quickly back to the arena. Seems less intimidating after your pep talk with yourself, and you give O'Mulligan a fierce smile of your own as you return to your seat. You can add one to our concentration for the coming frame. So, concentration now up to eight. The last frame before the mid session interval begins awkwardly. Both of you are eager not to yield any advantage to the other, and the table becomes increasingly pathological. At one point, the black is knocked over the top left corner pocket. That's a problem because it means there's a huge area of the table where nothing can be potted, and it makes safety play very, very straightforward. The reds start to be shepherded across that side as each of you struggle not to leave a pot on. When there is such an easy colour to follow, the cue ball is reliably returned to the ball cushion after each glancing shot off a red. How do you want to deal with this situation? Do you want to continue playing cautiously in this way, gathering the reds around the black near the pocket and hoping your opponent eventually pots the black by mistake? Would you rather try and cut this Gordian knot, attempting a difficult shot to knock the black out of the corner and back into play without leaving a red on, Or do you want to smash the white as hard as you can into the reds on the left of the table and trust to luck that one of them finds a pocket? I am a very natural hit and hope style of player, so it is the third of these options I will be taking. Frustrated by the state of the table, you put your faith in the gods of snooker and fire the white into the reds, scattering them wildly all over the table. So, roll a die if you get a one. Or a six, something happens. If you get anything else, it's just mediocre. Six! Come on! I'm going to roll another die. And again, if we get a one, something happens. If we get a six, something happens. And if we get a two to five, something else happens. And I do get a two. So you experience a measure of success. One of the rebounding reds slips into a middle pocket by chance, and the black remains hanging over its pocket. You are in and knock the black in straight away to get it back on its spot. And then you contemplate the state of the table. The balls are reasonably well placed for a decent break, although a couple rolled safe off your earlier reckless shot, and will probably prevent you from winning the frame in one visit. In the end, you break down on a score of 45, giving you a uh, healthy advantage. So I'm going to resolve the frame again as a kind of fight. Uh, A mulligan on the fourth frame has a form of 9 a concentration of nine, but you only need to win two rounds to claim the frame. So that's quite clever. I do like the thing whereby you're basically fighting the same guy all the way through, but his abilities will change as the match ebbs and flows. That is a really, really nice touch. Form nine, concentration nine. I'm going to roll some dice. Remarkably, I have managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. So, turns out being at minus two momentum is really bad for your ability to play snooker. I've lost the fourth frame, giving Johnny O'Mulligan a 3 1 lead. And as the great champion, Stephen Hendry says, key thing in the first mini session before the mid session interval is to come out of it at least 3 1 up. So he's done exactly what he needs to do. It is the mid-session interval. Leaving his cue by his seat, Johnny O'Mulligan stalks off to his dressing room. The referee clears the table so it can be brushed down. The audience mostly leave their seats to fetch drinks or snacks or just to stretch their legs, although a few remain in place watching the screens or studying their phones. What do you want to do for the next 15 to 20 minutes? Do you want to head back to your dressing room to relax with a cup of something hot, or would you rather go straight To the practice room and try and keep your arm going. Well, I'm playing very badly, so it's straight to the practice room for me. Pot a few balls, try and remind myself I'm good at this game. Picking up your cue and extension, you hasten to the practice room, where two tables stand ready. Through a glass screen, you can see a BBC team filming the mid-session discussion between the veteran host Rowan Irving and two former legends of the game, Dave Davis and Henry Hendry. They seem to be replaying one of your weaker shots from the first frame, but you consciously ignore them and turn to the table. You practice break-offs for a while and then switch to a standard setup with a row of reds down the centre line, concentrating on getting the perfect cue action and smooth follow-through as you pop them one by one. Keeping your arm going has the effect of preserving some of your built-up momentum from the first few frames. You may carry up to two positive momentum into the next mini-session, if you have accrued it if your momentum was negative, it resets to zero. Hooray. So turns out practicing is a good thing. Who'd have thunk? That will give me a much needed chance to uh, try and take at least one frame in the following four. I think I'm in survival mode now rather than trying to win the session mode. It's just a question of limiting the number of frames Johnny O'Mulligan can put up. But you know, that's sport. Uh, In addition, we need to roll one die, This is a nice random thing. One to two, three to four, five to six, three outcomes. I roll a two. The mid-session interval is coming to an end. Okay, fine. Nothing exciting happens to me. You return to the auditorium a minute before the appointed time, and O'Mulligan hurries in moments later, looking slightly distracted. Ooh, that could be good. Some members of the audience are still making their way back to their seats, full glasses in hand, and... Agneska Petrova waits alertly before receiving a signal that the cameras are ready to roll and the doors will be closed. Latecomers will have to wait outside until the end of the frame now. I've done that. You have to kind of watch the frame from on a little TV in a sort of shame pit with all the other people who were not quick enough getting their refreshments or going to the loo. It's a, a strange experience. Ladies and gentlemen, settle down please. Quiet please. Fifth frame. Uh, Did we break off? We did not. O'Mulligan will break off this frame. Fifth frame O'Mulligan to break. Your opponent steps boldly up to the table and sends the white crashing into the pack. Balls go everywhere. This should be a nice open frame, you think? As you approach the table, your heart leaps with excitement as you see that your opponent has not got away with his gamble. You have a range of options to go at. Straight red to the top left corner aiming to screw back and end up on the black to the other corner. That seems like a classic shot. Would you prefer to try cutting in a straightforward red near the left middle pocket to end up nicely on the blue to the right middle? Or do you want to take the opportunity to play a really good snooker behind the pink, which has rolled down towards the bulk end and is touching the green? Um, No, we need to take this, by, this match by the scruff of the neck. I'm going to go for straight red top left corner screw shot back to the black that hopefully will give me decent position to get onto the next red and i can just sit there taking reds and blacks seeking to take this chance by the scruff of the neck you smack the mid-range red right into the center of the pocket the white rolls back as if by magic and ends up perfectly on the black the audience clap enthusiastically gain one concentration concentration now eight There are several further reds in the open, and if you plan the break carefully, you should be able to win the frame at a single visit, with little risk. However, to leave your opponent needing snookers, you calculate that you'll have to take one difficult red from either the top or the right cushion. Do you want to try and move one of these awkward reds as soon as possible, or would you rather clear up the easy balls first to get a decent points buffer on the board and then worry about the safe reds later? I think against a player of O'Mulligan's character, you have to be looking to win the frames at one visit. You've got to play that aggressive shot when it's the right shot. You're not going to get that many golden opportunities. You've got to take them. Can you tell I've watched a lot of sneaker. I'm going to try and move one of those awkward reds as soon as possible. Hoping to deal with the problem red immediately to leave yourself a clear run to the finish, you attempt a dual-purpose pot on the black with the intent of bringing a red off the cushion and into play. And that's a good sneaker because it's generally considered sensible to uh, try and move a red when you're actually potting a colour. If you try and move a red on a red, you can sometimes end up not having position on any colour at all. Whereas if you screw it up, you can at least play a safety shot if you're on a colour. So, uh, two dice under our current ability six nicely done. You play the shot to a T, potting the black squarely, pushing the safe red off the top cushion by a couple of inches and leaving the white perfectly lined up on the red into the top right pocket. The rest of the break is a formality, and the only question is whether you can go on to make a century. If your concentration is greater than 10, you manage to maintain your focus and clear the table, making a fantastic 132 Break total clearance, always a good settler for a sneaker player. However, if your concentration is 10 or under, your attention drifts slightly once the frame is secure, and you absent mindedly go in off on a break of 84. But that still gets you one momentum. So we are hanging in there, absolutely hanging in there with the world number one, two, three, making up the lost ground. We now got a momentum of one. That makes the next frame seem a lot more doable. As you approach the table to break off in the sixth frame, an interesting thought crosses your mind. What if you were to play a non-standard break-off shot, as aging genius William Marks sometimes does, coming off the side and top cushions to strike the bottom of the pack? Usually to strike it very, very gently, so that the uh, white hopefully sort of sticks to the pack well, making it functionally impossible to leave a pot on. That might put your opponent off his stride and make it less probable he'll have a long red to go out straight away. Also, the black will be less likely to get tied up, facilitating bigger breaks and more free-flowing play. However, there's always a chance it could go wrong and give O'Mulligan an easy starter. I am going to risk it. I'm going to try the non-standard break-off. You haven't practiced this specific break-off much, but it's a pretty standard safety shot. The cue ball follows your intended line and trickles gently up to rest against the pack. Disturbing cup on a corner red slightly, but definitely not leaving anything on. A brief safety exchange follows. Two rounds of a safety battle to determine who gets the upper hand. So there's a range of outcomes here, possibly. So you could win both rounds, but O'Mulligan still has some concentration left. O'Mulligan could win both rounds, but I could still have concentration left. We could win one round each. I could defeat him completely by reducing his concentration to zero or by rolling a double six. Or, because if you roll, I should have said, if you roll a double six, it hasn't happened yet, you automatically win the frame. You win the safety battle immediately. Uh, Nice little critical hit roll. So, anyway, huge range of possibilities. I'm going to roll some dice. I got the... Best possible outcome. I managed to take out all nine points of concentration over the two rounds of the safety battle. Within just a couple of safety shots, a distracted O'Mulligan makes a bad misjudgment and leaves an easy red on for you. You capitalise on his mistake, going on to clear up the table and win the frame in a matter of minutes. The crowd cheer and wave their ton up banners as you sail past the century mark, and even your opponent can only sit back and admire your wonderful break. Gain two momentum. Excellent. So we're now up to momentum three. O'Mulligan firmly on the back foot, and we're three all in terms of frames. Suddenly, everything's coming up flange. In the seventh frame, after a small contribution from O'Mulligan, you make an excellent start potting your way out of an awkward position with a dramatic narrow cut to the left middle pocket. You then go on to produce a splendid break and your opponent can do nothing but sit in his seat and watch. As you cross the winning line, you calculate that a century is on. Just. But to make it, you'll need to take the remaining reds with blacks, in spite of several awkward balls. Since for every century made at the Crucible this year, the sponsors will donate 250 quid to the Sheffield branch of the Cats Protection League, you feel a strong incentive to go for it. However, there's a small risk of fouling or accidentally putting yourself in a snooker, which could let O'Mulligan back onto the table to play for snookers. Do you want to make absolutely sure of the frame, even though it will be missing out on the century, or do you want to keep the century alive? Well, if I go on to win the match, I'll be able to donate considerably more than the 250 quid to the Cats Protection League. So... I'm gonna make absolutely sure of the frame. Although the risk is tiny, you make completely certain of the frame coming up for the blue to give you a better angle on a tough red. In the end you make a thoroughly respectable ninety eight break, but the cats will not thank you for it. Feeling slightly guilty, you return to your seat. Gain one momentum, my momentum now up to four. So you can see how momentum can really, really shift. But for the very first time in this match, what did I win the opening frame? Anyway, I've now moved 4-3 ahead, which means I cannot be behind at the end of the session. It is the final frame of the session, and the audience are starting to grow restless and hungry. After the excitement of your win in the previous frame, you also feel you could do with a break, but O'Mulligan is still raring to go, apparently keen to strike back. After a brief safety battle, in which O'Mulligan always seems to be in control, he gets in with a long red to the green pocket and then sets about demolishing the table. There's nothing you can do but watch as he had to do in the seventh frame, and he rounds off the session with a splendid century of his own. You lose two momentum, but uh, trust that it will make little difference by the time you return to the auditorium at seven o'clock. We run out of the first session four frames a piece, which I think I'm pretty happy with after going three-one down at the mid-session interval and even with the loss of two points of momentum, I've still got two in hand, so let's see if I can hang on to those. You return to your dressing room, cue and extension in hand, avoiding the gaze of O'Mulligan as he heads to his own room. It's half five, so you have an hour and a half to yourself before the evening session gets underway. You are ravenous, so you'll definitely need to eat something, but beyond that you have several options. Do you want to call your coach Jimmy Black and have a leisurely dinner with him, reviewing the first session and discussing strategy for the next part of the match? Do you want to go on out and eat more briefly on your own and get back to the practice table for half an hour's preparation for the coming frames? Or you might want to grab a quick sandwich and then try and get 40 winks in readiness for what could be a late and hard-fought session. I'm not going to overthink it. I'm going to go and try and sort of turn my brain off maybe from the concentration and everything and go and have a leisurely dinner with Jimmy Black. I think it's really important to decompress when you have the chance to. I think that's a mark of a really, really great athlete, particularly over long tournaments and long uh, matches that ability to, to switch the concentration on and off. So we're going to go and have dinner. You text Jimmy and ask him to meet you at a quiet little Italian restaurant, you know, not far from the Crucible Theatre. Storing your precious cue safely in its case in your dressing room, you quickly change into more casual clothes and hurry out of the building, avoiding the main entrance and the hordes of snooker fans milling about there. See, in my head, snooker players dress like that all the time, the, uh, the formal wear. I know it's not true because I've seen them being interviewed, but... I feel like if I was a sneaker player, I'd just wear trousers, shirt and waistcoat all the time. In the restaurant, Jimmy is already seated at a secluded corner of the table, drinking a cold beer. Not wanting to be impaired in any way this evening, you reluctantly order a Coke as you join him. He's a grizzled world-weary man in his 60s. A former pro who reached the world finals himself on no less than seven occasions, but never managed to clinch the win. Long retired, he now hopes that you... his. Finest protege, and achieve what he could not with the help, of course, of his vast experience. Having ordered your starters and mains, you settle down to discuss the first session and look ahead to the second. His advice will depend on how you have done so far. Well, we aren't square. You shared the frames. That's that's fine. That's not too bad. Your coach comments, but keep pushing him. Don't let him get ahead. You can't afford to give him an inch. You uh, lose focus for a second, and he'll be there three frames ahead, just like that. He snaps his fingers in your face, making you flinch. Now, obviously, you'd like to win the second session, take a lead into the second day, really make him sweat overnight thinking about it. But if you're not feeling it, at least try and share the frames and keep things all square. He continues on in this vein, giving you tips and recounting anecdotes from his own past matches. Some of it is useful and should stand you in good stead for the evening. If your current form is nine or less, which it is, gain one form. Form nine, that's very helpful. Maintaining your focus on the match has also enabled you to retain a little of the positive momentum, if any, that you accrued during the previous frames. You may carry one momentum into the next session. Eventually, he runs out of advice and you finish your desserts and settle the bill. Once more into the breach, dear friend, he cries, clapping you on the back heartily as you leave the restaurant and head back towards the theatre. It's nearly seven o'clock, you will just have time to collect your cue from your dressing room. So, at the end of the first session is where I think we will leave this thrilling snooker-based adventure game book. I hope that that has piqued your interest somewhat. I'm obviously going to play through to a close another three sessions of snooker between me and a potential world championship. My maiden world championship, because I have actually played through this book once when I first got it, at which I did not succeed in hefting the trophy aloft. So I'm going to be hoping very much that second time's the charm and that I don't end up like a certain well-known snooker professional who did indeed make seven world championship finals without winning a single one. I'll be back in a few seconds with some closing remarks. Until then, tatty bye! (laughs) So that was the cruel game, and it turned out to be a very cruel game, as I lost thirteen to eighteen and the final frame I was miles ahead, deep into a comeback, Momentum was all on my side it was looking peachy, It was going to be a great upset story. then O'Mulligan pulled off the double six total clearance to stop me in my tracks. There was a good narrative thrust to the match with us sharing the frames for the first two sessions but then my opponent really pulled away in session three, which ultimately left me with just too much to do. And that is a classic snooker match narrative, and I very much enjoyed that. It just feels like playing snooker, but with words. As I said earlier, I don't want to comment too much on the specifics, but I think there are a couple of design elements that are worth thinking about. The first is that the game book's design and premise is very easy to grasp. You know exactly what it is you're trying to do from paragraph one. You're trying to win a very long snooker match. And as a designer or a writer, there's a lot to be said for having a very clear idea in your head what your game is going to be about, and trying to present that in a way that's easy to grasp. I think this is one reason why dungeons are so popular in fantasy gaming. No matter... The in-game rationale for going into the dungeon. We know that the aim is to get to the end and probably kill a big boss. Obviously, Death Trap Dungeon is the perfect example here. The goal of Death Trap Dungeon is to beat Death Trap Dungeon. I think giving players a very clear goal at the outset is usually a good plan. Not 100% of the time. It does depend on the type of story you're trying to tell, but certainly if you're designing a game or an adventure or a story for people who maybe are new to gaming then it's a really really good plan to make sure that you explicitly state the goal and that every part of the game or story or adventure points towards that goal. The second thing that I thought was interesting is that the Cruel game has of necessity a very linear structure at the highest level. You're going to be playing four frames of snooker and then have a 15 minute break. Then you'll come back and play another four frames before having a longer break. And there's nothing you can do with the choices that you make that will change that overall structure. Each frame, therefore, has to become a sort of mini adventure. In a classic fantasy story, you might well find that that becomes a problem. Certainly, I think if you're exploring a dungeon, and it was a straight line with no left or right decisions, or maybe there were left and right decisions, but they always lead you to the next room, you would start to feel a little bit miffed about that. But here, that's not the case, because the effect is simply simulating something which is known. You actually want that repetitive structure in a way, because as soon as you deviate from that, you are Moving away from the core premise of playing a game of snooker, there's an interesting issue with the format that while you can and do have battles throughout, you don't really have items in the same way that you might if you were dungeoneering, and that limits the design space quite considerably. But what Marcus has done is to have the cruel game play around a lot with your stats instead of giving you items; they're constantly changing throughout the book and then broadly resetting between sessions, and that gives a lot of natural variation for how the game can play out. This is a game that is pretty RNG heavy, but in a really interesting way. It's an interesting technique, and the momentum stat in particular feels exactly like it should. Make a bright start to a session or play badly in the opening frames, and there's a really good chance it will start to snowball, and that makes every session potentially feel different. and. All of the sessions have their own narrative within them and that kind of takes the place of items and keywords. The use of meta stats like momentum is something I definitely want to explore further in a future gamebook because I think there's a really big design space there for having something you can mess around with a lot without taking away from the unique character you've rolled up at the start. I think maybe something like a werewolf game with phases of the moon affecting your abilities, that would be a really good example. I don't currently have time to write that, but I might get to it one day. The last thing I want to shout out is the maximum break opportunity that comes in this book, which we didn't get to in the playthrough, but it's such a rare and exciting part of watching Snooker, the 147, that including it and making a big deal out of it is just a really sensible choice. It's the most mechanically complex frame by far, And it feels like a sensible design choice to spend a good chunk of time on it. And if you can pull it off, it feels really special, like a 147 should. It's difficult, it's unlikely, but it's always there. It also creates a little mini-peak about halfway through the story, which I think also is a really good way of breaking up the action and, again, giving the match you play that narrative heft. There's something very pleasing too about focusing on a single match rather than doing the whole tournament. I think it would have been easier in some ways to simulate a snooker tournament because you could abstract a lot of the play to a higher level and maybe focus on stuff off the table and there'd be a a more obvious narrative to develop there. This is actually, I think, in the end, more interesting. It reminds me of certain manga where fights can go on for chapter after chapter, and you get to know the characters as much through how they fight as how they talk, and that was an aspect I very much enjoyed. I think it'd be really fun to try and write a game book that worked in the same way and make the whole thing one long manga-style fight sequence and build in like, weird flashbacks and and odd subsystems for particularly insane fighting strategies. Now obviously the appeal of this book is somewhat limited. It was originally written for an audience of one, and there's some private jokes in there that literally no one else will be able to spot. But I do think it's a good time, and it absolutely feels like a snooker match with lots of low-key drama and pleasingly quotidian off-table encounters as well. There's nice things that you can get up to between the frames that adds another little wrinkle to the action. I do hope my patrons will enjoy having a play with it. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a regular episode in which we'll be delving beneath Nightmare Castle. We usually do bonus episodes every other month, but I'm planning on doing two episodes next month as well, so there's more content for everyone, patron and listener alike, over the summer while I have rather more free time. Thanks so much for listening, take care of yourselves, and I'll see you soon.